Welcome to the podcast for Centerpoint Church. Located in the heart of Concord, New Hampshire, Centerpoint is all about living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The message today is a part of that journey, and we are glad to have you join us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. If you are new with us this morning, you're kind of jumping in uh, mid-series here, so we're in a sermon series called Beautiful Feet. And we have been tracking through the book of Acts. So a brief, a brief recap to kind of bring us up to speed, to onboard us, to prepare us for the passage that we're going to be exploring today. Acts chapter 1 starts with Jesus, and he is with his disciples, and they have a lot of questions for him. And he says, guys, here's what you need to do. Just trust. I'm going to ascend and be enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and then the Spirit is going to come. And he is going to fill you, and you are going to be my witnesses starting here in Jerusalem. And then you're going to go out to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then we turn to chapter 2. And we see the disciples, 120 of them, waiting in an upper room. And they're praying, and they're waiting, and they're following what Jesus invited them to do. And the Spirit falls as tongues of fire, and rushing wind comes. And they, they leave this upper room, and they run out. And it's this frantic and yet amazing, beautiful scene where they, they burst out of the room, and they're proclaiming the goodness of God, the praises of God, that the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that was waiting for the anointed one, the Messiah, to come, had finally arrived, and they had good news to share with all of the people. And the people heard this good news being proclaimed, each person in their own language, because in that day, folks would have gathered in Jerusalem from all over the known world at that time, and they heard this good news being proclaimed in their own language. And then chapter 3, we saw Peter and John, two key leaders in the early church, two of the original apostles. And Jesus actually heals a person who was lame from birth through their witness, through their prayers, because Jesus is good and his kingdom is breaking in. And then last week, we looked at chapter 4, where because of that healing, there's now questioning, there's now suspicion, and there's now opposition from the religious leaders who are saying, no, 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 Jesus wasn't the Messiah. In fact, we killed him because he committed blasphemy. He claimed to be God, and he wasn't. We're still waiting for the Messiah, so you saying that Messiah has arrived, you, you need to be silent. We're the ones who are in control. We're the ones who vet what happens here. And so this is where we find ourselves here in chapter four. And so last week we saw that, that Peter and John are arrested by the religious leaders. They can't find grounds to charge them with anything, so they, they threaten them. And they tell them that they need to stop teaching and stop preaching in the name of Jesus in his authority, in his power. And we get to look at today what they do upon their release, what Peter and John do upon their release. And so here they are. Uh, so we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And they present to us, Peter and John, and then the whole early church present to us a model and a template for what this looks like when we inevitably encounter opposition as followers of Jesus, because I think our tendency to use broad categories is one of three. Usually we fight, or we flee, or we freeze, we're not sure what to do. 
And so they actually model the fourth option for us that we're going to take a look at today. So turn with me to Acts 4, starting in verse 23. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, that is the whole assembly, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote Psalm 2 here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod, the religious leader of the Jewish people, and Pontius Pilate, the religious leader of the Roman people, met together with the Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, and the people of Israel, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here we are. What a response. What an amazing response. And this becomes a template for us today. So look back at, at verse 23. Peter and John were just threatened. And, and as we saw last week, this was a serious threat. This wasn't like, hey, Peter, John, we don't really like you guys. We, we don't think that you're cool. Can you just be a little bit cooler, please? Like, this was a serious threat. What we can infer from the threat given earlier in chapter 4 from the religious leaders was death. If you continue to speak in the name of Jesus and you continue to preach about Jesus, the inevitable conclusion is what we did to Jesus will now happen to you. Like, we can infer that from their threats here. So what might Peter and John do? We should ask ourselves that. What might they do? Because remember, last time Peter in particular found himself under immediate threat and opposition was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus who was being arrested. You remember that scene at the end of the Gospels? And Jesus is being arrested and Peter who had puffed himself up and had said, Lord, even when everybody deserts you, I won't. I will stand with you. I don't care what in that moment Jesus is being arrested he pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers that's arresting Jesus and what he gets from Jesus what Peter gets from Jesus is a sharp rebuke put that away do you think that that's how my kingdom is advanced do you think that my kingdom is advanced by violence and earthly power I haven't modeled for you to fight like the powers of hell I have modeled for you to stand in the power of heaven Peter, don't you know that I could call down legions of angels right now in this moment and they would rescue us? But that's not the will of my father. The will of my father is that his kingdom be advanced as I lay myself down in love and self-sacrifice. And so we have this scene here. We're not too far removed from that moment where Peter pulled the sword and cut the ear off. We're not too far removed here. And Peter and John's response is very different. So what do they do? The first thing they do is they run to the Lord. They run to the Lord. So look, verse, verse 23, it says, on their release, they went back to their own people. Okay, so isn't it wonderful they have a community? They're not in this alone. 
So friends, you're not in this alone. Following Jesus was never meant to be done alone in isolation. This has always been a collective and communal thing that we as individuals participate in. We bring our gifts to the table, but we get to do this together. What great comfort there is in that. So they have people that they run back to, they give this report, and then verse 24, when they, that's all of them, heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Notice that, in prayer. This is the first place that the early community runs to when it encounters opposition. So these beautiful feet, they run to God. These beautiful feet that were serving the Lord Jesus, whose kingdom was breaking in through them, they now stop and they sit and they pray. And how often, at least for me, you guys are probably much more sanctified than I am, but at least for me, my tendency is not first and foremost to run to the Lord to stop, sit, and pray. My tendency in any given situation, particularly when there's opposition, is either to fight or to run away, or sometimes you just want to play possum. I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to just kind of hang out here in this moment. And they model for us something very different. Their first inclination is to sit and stop and pray. And we don't want to overlook that. That's really, really important. So they sit and they pray. So notice, notice how they pray. I think this is modeling something for us as a community of faith, but also as individuals. Notice how they pray. You see, how they pray is they're actually taking this story, so in particular the Old Testament, what we now call the Old Testament story, and they're allowing the story to actually shape what they pray, and then as that shapes what they pray, it actually changes the way that they see their present situation. So they sit in the story, and this reframes this present circumstance where there's tremendous opposition rising up against them. And this is really important because they were trained, the disciples were trained by Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi means teacher. Rabbi Jesus. So they weren't, we saw this last week, they weren't trained in the traditional schooling, the rabbinical schooling, which would have steeped them into the scriptures, but would have had a high emphasis upon also memorizing and remembering well, what Rabbi Steve had to say about this, and then what Rabbi Joe had to say about this passage, and then because they, they were supposed to steward this story forward, and the way that they did that was they reflected on what all the rabbis thought and their perspectives on scripture, and then Jesus comes along, and he shares with his disciples, and he says things like, you've heard it said, but here's what I have to say. What? Rabbis don't do that. <laughs> they don't do that. They, they are merely here to protect what has been given to them? And Jesus is coming in and saying, oh, it's because I'm the master teacher. I'm the master rabbi. So I want you to see this differently. I want you to reframe this. And so the apostles were steeped in this because Jesus had a particular way of viewing the scriptures. What do I mean? Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And we could spend a lot more time here, but we're just gonna spend a bit. Starting in verse 44. Let me set the table for a moment. This is the resurrected Jesus, and he's going to give a Bible study. Can you imagine that? A Bible study with the resurrected Jesus before he ascends to his throne in heaven. Oh, that's amazing. So here's what he says. He said to them, that is the 12, 
He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Right? So he's like, this isn't new, but let me connect the dots together. Everything must be fulfilled, or you could say filled to the full. That is written about me? Isn't that interesting? He's saying that the whole Old Testament points to him. Must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is shorthand for what we call the Old Testament. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah, that is the anointed one, that's going to become important here. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you all are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. Here's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now that passage deserves a whole message unto itself. But I want to bring that to your attention Because Jesus had a particular way of viewing the Old Testament. And as his followers, we want to do the best that we can to read that the same way that he would. And so he's telling us that this story in the Old Testament has an ending point. And the ending point has a face. And that face has a name. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. That he was the one all the way back in the Garden of Eden... When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they chose to exercise choosing right and wrong on their own terms and redefined what is good and evil because following God's wisdom wasn't enough. They needed to be like God even though they were already made in his image. And so they took it and they ate of it. And you can read this in your own time in Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is really important. So write that down, highlight that, go check it out. God is cursing the serpent and he says, I'm going to raise up an offspring from the woman who will one day come and he will crush your head. But you will deliver him a fatal blow, you'll strike his heel, but he will come, he will crush your head. And then we trace that red thread through the whole Old Testament story and it is a story waiting on tiptoes for that one to come who would crush the head of the serpent. Like that's, it's pointing to that, that moment And then we get to Jesus, and he says, that's me. I'm the one who's come to crush the head of the serpent. And he does it in a way that the Old Testament alluded that he would. But most rabbis of the day, they missed it. They missed it because Jesus, in this passage, tells us that this whole Old Testament is highlighting that the Messiah, that anointed one, will suffer and die. He will rise again on the third day. Forgiveness of sins will be preached. New life will break in, and then his followers will be witnesses to those things. And so now back to our passage in Acts chapter 4. This is the story that as the disciples are praying here in response to this opposition, this is the story that they have in the backdrop. This is really important. <clears throat> so if we, can, if we can bring up that slide with kind of the pictures on it. Thank you. Um, so... This is the story that they had in mind. And this is really cool. Like, we could nerd out on this for a while, but we'll nerd out on it just for a few minutes. So look at, look at verse 24. So let's keep, um, keep that slide up there. I want to read verse 24 here. Um, 
When they heard this, they raised their voices together to prayer, in prayer to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You catch that? So where are they grounding their whole prayer? Right in the creative work of God. Right, right in the beginning. He made everything. He created everything. That seems like a, like a really, that's Homer Simpson level, like, duh. <laughs> right? But here's the important part. If we go back and we read the first two chapters of the Bible, and then you read a psalm like Psalm 8, for example, articulates this really well. The intent behind this was that the pinnacle of God's creation was humanity. And humanity was placed in the garden and God commissioned them to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the earth with him and on his behalf. So we were actually created to rule and reign with God and on his behalf. Actually imaging God to creation. All of creation. And so Psalm 8 reflects on this. You can meditate on Psalm 8 on your own time. Ruminate on that. But it articulates this vision that God had. And so they're grounding themselves back here as they begin their prayer. And then look at verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Isn't that interesting? So they're quoting Psalm 2 here. So we don't have time. We're not going to get into Psalm 2, but you can look at that in your own time. Psalm 2 is a very important psalm because it's looking forward to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to the king, who the whole Old Testament was waiting for on tiptoes. And it's saying that when that Messiah would actually come onto the scene, he would be opposed by all people, including his own. And so... Why? Why would this Messiah be opposed by his own creation? By the creatures who he made, by the, by the people who he loves and actually lays down his life for? Oh, well, because of a thing called what we call today the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And we, we already touched on that briefly. This moment where Adam and Eve have standing before two trees, the tree of eternal life, that's God's vision from the beginning, or the tree of the knowledge of knowing good and evil. And so their, their options were, we walk in the cool of the day in the garden with Yahweh, that is the personal name for God as he reveals himself to Moses. We walk with him in the cool of the garden and we receive wisdom from him. It's this picture of childlike innocence where they bring him their questions and then in relationship, he shares wisdom with them. Like parents, we get, what a wonderful opportunity we get to share wisdom with our children. Or if you're like me, so my wife and I have three, three little ones, five and under, and uh, my oldest, I call this the inquisition age. Like, it is why on top of why on top of why on top of why. <laughs> And it's wonderful, like it's a wonderful gift, but it also gets tiring sometimes. It's just like, why this, why that, why this, why that, why this? But what an opportunity we get to actually, in relationship, teach and correct and share wisdom and model with our lives. What does this look like to walk with the Lord? And yet, here, we also are like Adam and Eve, and the nations are also like Adam and Eve, and leaders can also be like Adam and Eve, where we and they, 
And I individually have this choice. Do I want to walk with God in wisdom or do I want to redefine what's good and evil on my own terms in this any given situation? And I often will choose that. You maybe won't, but I will. I'll speak just for me. When, oh, God's inviting me to walk with him. And so here the nations, they're raging and they're plotting in vain because our default position is actually rebellion against God. Our default position is, I want to redefine what's good and evil on my own terms. I want to define what's best for me and my people and my clan and my tribe. You with me? Like this is, we experience this in life, in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And this goes back to the fall. This goes back to the decision that Adam and Eve made and we replay that decision over and over and over individually in our families, in our communities, and in our, in our nations. And so the nations are raging against the Messiah. And then look, it says in verse 26, the kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. So there's our key word, our anointed one. This takes us to the third movement in that, in that big story slide that was up for you a few minutes ago. This is the middle one where God said, Adam and Eve, even though you made this decision, I am gonna relentlessly pursue you out of my love for you. And so he has to, there's consequences for their actions, so he has to exile them, or else they would have stayed in that state forever. So he exiles them, but he's constantly pursuing them. And then we get to Genesis 12 with Abraham, and he calls Abraham out, and he calls the one out of the many to bless the many. He says, Abraham, it's gonna be through you and your family that I'm gonna bring about a nation, and through that nation, I'm gonna bring about one, the anointed one, the Messiah, who is gonna crush the head, all the way back to 315 of Genesis, crush the head of that snake. You, you following this? Like this is the logic of the story and they're praying this right here in Acts chapter four. So they have this in the backdrop, creation, fall, this road to ultimate redemption which would come through the Messiah and here in Acts chapter four they're saying, this has arrived, the Messiah is here. He has made a way. And how has he done that? He allowed the powers of death, of empire, of religion to swallow him whole so that he might go into death and rip it out from the inside out, come out on the other side and usher in new life in this present age. And so they get to this moment in verse 27 where they say, Herod and Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So notice what they're doing. The Jewish people and the non-Jewish people conspiring together. This is Jewish language for all of the people conspire together to actually kill Jesus whom you anointed. He was the long-awaited Messiah and redemption has come. And so this is how they are praying they are praying by sitting in the story and they're allowing the story to reshape the present circumstance so that they might stand in faith and exercise boldness in love as they proclaim the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit because they understand that they are caught up in something much greater than me and my own happiness. They're caught up in this grand story that God invites you and I into individually and collectively as a faith community. Like this is what we get to participate in. 
And so, so they, they find themselves, if you could bring that picture slide back up one more time, please. They find themselves, thank you, in between movements four and five. So you're with me. So they find themselves here in this passage, as we today find ourselves, in between redemption. So something has happened. Jesus is king. Something has happened. Jesus has made a way for new life to usher in now into the present moment. And yet, one day Jesus will return. So restoration. He will restore all things. This story in the New Testament is a story that ends with King Jesus coming back. The new Jerusalem coming from heaven and reuniting with earth. Heaven and earth being reunited. What was ripped apart at the fall, heaven and earth, coming back together in the new heavens and earth. And Revelation 22.5 says that the saints, the lamb, and the one on the throne, that they all will reign forever and ever on the new heavens and new earth. Remember creation. God created humanity to rule and reign with him on his behalf. Restoration, he never gave up on that project. Restoration, Jesus returns, and we, that is Jesus' followers and Jesus, will get to rule and reign on the new heavens and earth where there is no sin and there is no more death and there are no more tears. Like, that's the story. And this is the story that they had in the backdrop of their minds as they were praying this passage. So all of that sets them up because they recognize that they live in this in-between. Redemption has happened. Restoration is not here. Jesus has made a way and yet he's coming back again. So now, new life is extended to all people. And yet... We still live in a world where we're outside of Eden and there's sin and there's death and there's pain and there's suffering. And here there's opposition to this king. Of course there is. Because on the cross, Jesus defeated and disarmed the spiritual powers in heavenly places. And yet, until he returns, those powers are ticked off. And they're not going to give up ground easily. And the way that the kingdom of God comes into the material world in which you and I find ourselves in, it comes through people. Think about your own story, how you came to know Jesus. I bet you people were involved. Someone had to tell you about Jesus. Somewhere along the line, you had to hear the good news to believe it. You with me? It comes through people. It, come, it comes through you and through me. And this is the wonderful invitation for us to participate in that kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the reverse is true as well, that the kingdom of hell makes its way into the material, tangible, what we live in world through people, through decisions that people make, through Human rebellion and wickedness where we just keep choosing. I want to redefine good and evil on my own terms. I want to redefine evil, good and evil on my own terms. I want to protect me and my tribe and my people. And I don't care about anybody else. In fact, those other people, they just become means to my own end. So we, you and I, find ourselves with the disciples in this passage in between movements four and five. And it can be thoroughly confusing at times. Because now... Jesus has made a way, and not yet has he returned. So we live in this in-between. So the disciples here, with this story in mind, they understand that this is not personal. 
that empire and religion rearing its head in opposition against them is not personal. It's actually not personal. Why is it not personal? Because they understand that in the heavenly places, those cosmic powers, to use Paul's language from Ephesians and Colossians, are actually exercising the systems and structures and people in empire and religion to bring about opposition against this Jesus movement. So they go, yeah, this isn't personal. Nope. This is, we actually expect this to happen. We actually expect that we'll encounter opposition because we're caught up in a story that's grander than ourselves. We're caught up in a story where heaven is breaking into the present through Jesus' people as they walk with Jesus. And so we expect that opposition will happen. And as the book of Acts unfolds, what we see is what happened to Jesus happens to his followers. Opposition, threats, arrests, persecution, pain, death, suffering. And yet God works through it all redemptively to bring about his greater purpose. And it's amazing. And it's really confusing, particularly for me, being a 21st century modern Western American. Because much of my life has been built around what I can attain, how I can provide security for me and my family, how I can make a name for myself, how I can belong to a people and then we protect ourselves. We don't really need to think about anybody else. We got our ground, they've got theirs, we protect us. We're not interested in them. And over and over again, the kingdom of God and Jesus say, nope, that's not the framework. That's not the attitude. That's not the way that I want you to see this because I want you to run to me. I want you to sit in my story so that you can walk out as my faithful witnesses. Walk it out as my faithful witnesses. Look at what they pray. Verse 29. Now, Lord, so this is kind of like, in light of this whole story, here's what we're asking. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Oh. Notice, the place they were meeting was shaken. They could have been a shaken people because of the opposition that was rising against them, but instead, they're a faithful people and the place that they're meeting is shaken. They're all filled with the Spirit and they went out and they spoke the word of God boldly in love. Isn't this amazing? So what, what did they not pray for? What did they not pray for? Well, they there's a lot of things we could say, but just to highlight a few. They didn't pray, oh God, this is really hard. Can you just take us out of the situation? Can you just make it go away? So, so they didn't pray to escape, right? Uh, they didn't pray, God, would you just change them and just make them nice to us, please? Can, can they just be kind to us now? Um, so we're praying that you would override their humanity and freedom that you've given them. Just make them robots and make them kind robots, please so that they'll just go along to get along. Nope, they don't pray that either. Um, nor do they pray, God, would you make hell, uh, I'm sorry, would you make hail and fire rain down on them and just wipe them out, please? So they, they didn't pray for vengeance. No, that, that's not what they prayed for. They prayed in faithfulness that God would strengthen them they prayed in faithfulness that God would see and hear and observe the threats of these religious leaders. Observe it. It's in your hands, Lord. That's what that means. It's in your hands. We trust you. 
That's your responsibility, not ours. What is our responsibility is fulfilling the commission you gave us to make disciples of all nations. And we want to do that, so strengthen us. And then they pray that God would stretch out his hand. That God would do what only God can do. Because last time I checked, none of you can heal anybody. Neither can I. None of you can perform a sign and a wonder. Neither can I. Jesus can do this through his people. And so this is what they're praying for. God, keep advancing your kingdom. And we want to faithfully participate in that as your witnesses, as we proclaim through word and deed what it means to have beautiful feet, what it means to be a beautiful community of people. And then notice how they don't walk out. They don't walk out of this prayer gathering for going and creating a petition for people to sign. They, they don't walk out of this gathering uh, with signs so that they can go picket at the temple. Um, they don't walk out of this meeting so that they can go protest. Uh, they don't walk out of this meeting going, hey, we should boycott the temporal sacrifices, yada, 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 because maybe that'll really stick it to them. Um, and they certainly don't walk out of this gathering picking up arms. They certainly don't. Because they understand that the invitation is not to fight like hell. That the invitation is to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us today? Because for most of us, as modern Westerners, like, and we celebrate tomorrow, we're celebrating Memorial Day. We have so many great freedoms in this country. And so we read a passage like this and it kind of feels a little foreign. Like I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some folks in here, but I, we're not sharing stories every Sunday like, yeah, I, my life was threatened again because I talked about Jesus in my workplace. Um, so we don't experience it like that. But I'll tell you what we do experience. We do experience opposition. And it can come through multiple forms. So sometimes it might come through ridicule and belittlement. Maybe you've experienced that in your family, with your friends, coworkers, classmates. It can come in the form of being ostracized. So like, yeah, yeah, you're just weird. Or you're offensive that you follow Jesus and you talk about, you just need to go over here. We're just gonna do our thing. And that can even happen in your family. You can become ostracized. It comes in the form of being overlooked, maybe in school or in the workplace, where you're overlooked for a promotion or a moment to lead because you're a person of faith. And you might not be told that directly, but you, just, you, you can infer that that's, some of that might be there. You could be discredited. You're just an idiot that you believe this stuff. You are actually part of the reason that's holding society back from progressing to our utopia that we want to get to. And we'll expedite getting there if people like you just weren't around. So there's many of you in here this morning who you come in with battle scars and the invitation, part of the invitation today is to let's situate those scars within the story. Those people who said or did or are doing or saying those things to you, they're not your enemy. It's really hard. 
to grasp this. And I feel a bit like the blind leading the blind in this moment. Jesus invites us to be a people who love our enemies. Jesus says that you will be persecuted, that you will experience opposition, but blessed are you when you experience that because it's a sign that my kingdom is breaking in. And so for whatever you've experienced, here's the good news, is that you belong in God's family. Jesus sees you and he says, I see you and I know you, I made you and you belong. You're part of my family. I'm gonna give you gifts and I want you to exercise them, exercise them and participate in a community of my followers that together you might be this beautiful community where generosity and abundance overflow where you share and you do life together. And that there's something actually attractive in that to people who don't yet know me. Remember, Jesus in John 17 said that the greatest witness to his existence was a church unified in abundant generosity to one another. And we took a look at that in Acts chapter two. So this part of the invitation, you belong You're welcome in his family. In fact, Jesus tells us that when we turn to him from doing life our way and we turn and repent and say, Jesus, I want to receive your forgiveness for my sins. I want to walk with you and be sealed with your Holy Spirit. He says in that moment, there's a party in heaven. Did you you know that? Like when you came to know Jesus, there was a party in heaven. And if you don't yet know Jesus, there's going to be a party in heaven when That's part of the invitation here. The other part of the invitation is you are secure and safe. He he looks at us, he says, you are secure and safe in my arms. It doesn't matter if the world is falling apart around you, the safest place to be is right here with me. So let that settle in. You belong. You are safe. And you have significance Because your identity, if you're in Jesus, is now one where the Father sees you as his child. You're part of the kingdom of light. He's covered you with his righteousness. You don't have to work to earn his favor. You get to work out of the fact that Jesus has worked to give you his favor. That's good news. And I think that we also experience some of this, this opposition. So we talked a bit individually there, personally. I think we also experience this in part because of the reality of where we're at in our nation's history. Our nation has a rich Judeo-Christian tradition within it. We, as Jesus' followers, for the majority of our history, we had places of authority. We're in positions of power. We had tremendous privilege in those places. And we look around at all the statistics. We look around anecdotally at our own life experience. We go, I kind of feel alone. Like I don't know many Christians outside of people at at my church. Um, And it can feel, because in part it actually is, like we're just slowly, sometimes more quickly, slowly just drifting off to the margins of society. We don't really care what you have to think. In fact, we're better if we don't hear what you have to think. 
We're just kind of over here in the margins. And the margins feel kind of scary, if we're honest. Like, it's just a scary place to be. It feels a bit dangerous. Like, we kind of lost our footing. We can't rely on empire and religion to, to kind of make things okay for us and, and protect the rights that we've been given. So it could feel dangerous. It could feel lonely and isolating. And this is where we find ourselves with increasing measure. And the good news is that the kingdom of God is exploding in parts across the world. So while we might be waning here, it is exploding in other places in the world. And just because it's waning here doesn't mean that God's at work. Oh, he's at work. How do I know he's at work? Evidence that he's at work. As I get to know each of you and hear your stories of how God is at work and what he's doing in your life. And yet, that feels very real to us. It puts us in a position of powerlessness. And this is why, collectively, the American church, I'm overgeneralizing here, it's not everybody, it's not every church, our tendency in this moment is we want to run away. So you hear this in sentiments like, yeah, things are just going really bad, I think Jesus is going to return like now. Maybe he is, I don't know. He told us that he doesn't know the time of the day. Only the Father knows. Scripture says, pray for Christ's return. When it talks about praying for his return, it's not talking about with this anxiety where we just want to escape. It's talking about because he is our beloved and we're his beloved. We're the bride and he's the groom and we want to have that wedding. We want to break bread and have that feast. Like that's the motive for it, not please take me away, this is really hard. Or it comes out in in freezing. Like it's just, I'll just kind of go back to my own bubble me and my family will just kind of stay here. We'll just insulate and protect ourselves because it's just kind of really a dangerous world out there, so we'll just kind of check out. Or it comes out in fighting. And this one's a weird one. Like, it just comes out in fighting where we actually, as people of God, collude with the powers and principalities of empire and religion. And we actually use messianic language around our political parties and around our favorite candidates. Like, she's our girl, that's our guy. He's going to make things right for us. She's going to get it done. Friends, if we think that checking a box on a ballot, which is a wonderful right that we have in this country to exercise, if that's exercising our faith, that's a small part of it. The invitation is for us to be a beautiful community who doesn't get caught up in the culture wars. I guess just feels so 90s, growing up in the 90s. We don't get caught up in that. The invitation is to something way better We don't get caught up in the fighting the way that the world wants to fight and encourages us to fight and then we collude with empire and religion to see God's kingdom advance, to see our rights protected. Because as Jesus' followers, we recognize, I actually don't have any rights anymore. I'm his. I'm his servant. I have way more than rights. I have new life. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. And he's inviting me to participate with him as he advances his kingdom. And so, I'm being playful here. We do have rights because we live in America. I'm a citizen of this country. I'm grateful for those rights. My grandfather was in the National Guard. My dad was in the Air Force. And in another life, I was a World War II reenactor, if you can believe it. Um, But, friends, when we follow Jesus, our primary identity is first in him. I am Jesus's. And then secondarily, I happen to be a citizen of this country. 
and I want to exercise my rights and my freedom, but I want to do it in a way where I'm standing firm in this story, where I'm running to him in prayer, where I'm part of a community where we run to him in prayer, where we put our preferences to the side, and where are people praying for God to shake us and awaken us and meet us in his great love that we with our beautiful feet might go and extend his great love to the world around us so that we might be a people who are shaken by him because our foundation is not built on my 401k or my 403b. It's not built on the country that I live in. It's not built on my political party or my favorite politician got into office. It's not built on what we have and how much I can hoard and how much I can protect myself. It's built on the foundation of Jesus and Jesus alone. And when it's built on the foundation of Jesus, we're not gonna be a people who are shaken because we expect opposition will come. Not because we go looking for it, not because we're going out and spewing hate at people, No, because we are God's people in love with beautiful feet, sharing through word and deed his kingdom individually and as a community of people so that we're not shaken by what's happening, but we're shaken by God because we're built on Jesus. And when that happens, when we seek him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in prayer, which is a portal to walking with God in the garden, now we're back to creation. When we do that, oh, everybody better watch out because Jesus' kingdom is being and will be with greater degree unleashed through you and through me. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth. The story reminds us, this isn't primarily about going to heaven when you die, although that is real. It's actually about Jesus' kingdom breaking in now and you and I individually and together with beautiful feet get to participate in that. So expect opposition. Expect it. Allow the story to reframe the way that you interact in the world and be filled with the Holy Spirit as we seek him in prayer and we rely only on him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these reminders. Would you do a work in us that is mighty? Would you shake us? Would you strip away the things that we rely on for our security and our strength and our belonging? Strip those away. Show us the faulty foundation that they are that we might only be founded on Christ. God, fill us with your spirit afresh. Stretch out your hands. Do mighty works and wonders. Set captives free. And would we get to participate with you in that as we walk and surrender with you. Jesus, in your name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Friends, would you experience God's blessing and joy this week, even in the midst of fierce opposition in which you find yourself? Would you allow this story to shape the way that you interact and see the world and share his love with others? And if you want prayer, this passage is a beautiful reminder of the importance of prayer. If you need prayer, come on down. Our prayer team will be here. If you don't know who Jesus is, or you're curious to learn more about Jesus, you know some about him, come on down and and talk. We'd love to connect with you and get to know you. So would you be blessed this week as you go forth with your beautiful feet to demonstrate the goodness of God through word and deed. Be blessed.
take a little bit to stop and reflect on what God might be saying to you and how you'll respond to him today. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, we are here to serve you. Find us at centerpointnh.org and join us on the journey of living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus.